Hi, and welcome to Draft the Universe. I'm Chris. I'm Ben. And I'm tired of this shit. Jafer! <laughs> Jafer, I'm... I'm Jafer. We understand it's past your bedtime. Wait, wait. I mean, you were too old for this shit last week. But now you're tired for this shit? Okay. Uh, so, sometime uh, during the course of research for this episode, we found something kind of remarkable. Uh, so, our cold open today is going to be a little bit different. What we've got here is... Um, a, a screenplay um, sometime early in the uh, production process for the first James Bond film, Dr. No, uh, the script underwent some major rewrites in a uh, what can only be described as a half-hearted attempt to soften the perceived sexism of the original literary James Bond. Uh, so for the first time, we present a scene from that original draft here in which James Bond receives his Walther PPK pistol uh, a weapon that would go on to be pretty iconic as a Bond gun, and uh, particularly in the, the Connery era. <clears throat> um, so we're going to read this for you. Um, ben will be playing the role of M. Yes. I will be playing the role of Q. And uh, Jafar here will be playing the role of none other than the spy himself, James Bond. If you hear somebody talking very intentional and into the microphone like this, these are the stage directions. Uh, also, we tried to do this with accents, but none of us are particularly great at them, so you might hear some occasional um, uh, digressions into having accents, but for the most part, we're not going to have English accents for this. Those cost too much in post, so. Shall we? Let's do it. Interior, daytime. A British office. Very British indeed. Lots of wood paneling. The ghost of Winston Churchill looks on from the window, semi-transparent, but definitely very pissed about the state of things. Very British. Cannot overstate how British this looks. Two elderly gentlemen are seated in posh leatherback chairs. M, the dad you are never able to please, is smoking a cigarette. Q, the kindly old man. Like Gandalf, but with high-tech weaponry and last-century thoughts on the role of women in society, waits, holding a weapons box like a puppy in his lap. Both are obnoxiously British, the sods. They're waiting for James Bond, syphilitic super spy. This is the first film of 24, and they're already sick of his shit. There's a knock at the door. Knock, knock. The giggling of Miss Moneypenny is heard in the background. If you finish banging my secretary, Mr. Bond, do come in. Enter James Bond, who has never been more than 24 hours post-coitus in his entire life. He feels nothing when he kills a man and even less when he sleeps with the man's widow. Existence is a black, roaring lacuna into which one shovels the corpses of women after man after woman, never finding an end to the hunger within. The void looks back at you. Chaos reigns. You called for me, sir. Yes, yes, come in. Speaking to Q. Take his jacket, will you? Aha! I told you, John, he's wearing the girly gun! Don't use my first name, you asshole! What's the point of having code names if you don't get to use them? It's not like this other asshole, he points to Bond, is walking around enemy territory, introducing himself as Jimmy Bloody Bond now, is he? Sir. I told you to get rid of that Beretta, 007. Since I took over as head of MI6, 00 agent fatalities have been reduced by 42%. We shoot a lot of people in this line of work, and this is basically a paintball gun. You codknocker, do you want to die? I've never heard any complaints about the size of my caliber. What are you, 12 fucking years old? Shut up 
and listen to Grandpa tell you about how shitty your gut is. Well, it's got stopping power enough, I grant. Uh, thank you, Q. If you're a pussy or an Italian, and while I've heard that you're particularly adept at slaying both, heyo, neither should be allowed to work in MI6. Bad enough we've got Mrs. Honey Trousers out there flashing her ankles at every gun-wearing psychopath with a death wish who comes to see us. In my day... Get to the point, Q. Righto. This... Click, click. Is a Walther motherfucking PPK. Did you just cock that indoors? That's what she said, 007. Do pay attention. Walked right into that one. Do not let the size of this gun fool you, Bond. This is an unstoppable force for destruction and anarchy. It fires a 7.56mm round, like a brick through a plate glass window. This can kill a rhinoceros from half an hour away, and still make it halfway through an elephant on the return trip. Sir? It's like driving a semi-truck through a papier-mâché hot dog factory, James. Like launching a bowling ball through 17 consecutive marble statues of Margaret Thatcher. Like a fishing spear through a red satin dress. Yes, I suppose. Like a Tori Hanzo steel through soft, warm... Lower class flesh. Like a thermonuclear missile plowing into Berlin to prove we've not forgotten you, Adolf. Try drinking in the radioactive beer gardens. <laughs> like sneaking into an old lady's house in the middle of the night, creeping up the stairs without a sound, taking a cricket bat to her skull, and leaving the valuables conspicuously unstolen so the bobbies know you were there for the fun, not the money. For the fun, James. For the thrill. Jesus Christ. Carried more firepower than you, 007. Now take this gun and get the hell out of here. Oh, and do try not to destroy any nuclear reactors while you're in Jamaica. Footsteps. Emma's heard breathing heavily. Oh, and James. I've included a hidden pocket for condom prophylactics in the holster. Now why would I use those? <laughs> Let's do it. I might need more booze. <laughs> well, I've got them. the Nerdfight Battle Royale. This week, we are doing our Bond film matchups. So, uh, first, I need to apologize, because last week during the draft, I confused uh, the AHA Bond theme song with the Duran Duran Bond theme song. An easy mistake to easy make. Mistake I know, happens. and I, I, I was really excited because I thought I had the Duran Duran View to a Kill uh, theme song, but as much as I like that song... It is not worth drafting of you to a kill. So I'm fine with how things ended up. Uh, we've all had a, a, a great week. We've all watched a lot of Bond films. Uh, we're, all, I, yeah. we're all drinking martinis yes. right now. Yeah. Uh, so here's to the matches, fellas. Clink, clink. Get it a little shaken. I think our, mic, our mic, microphone's going to be up. Oh, that is awful. 
Uh, you ever... Yeah, it's never meet your heroes in real life. <laughs> oh, Ben, here. Okay. <laughs> I've already finished mine. Wait, was that... <laughs> you live closest to the studio. That's true. Was that... Um, I don't have to drive. <laughs> that might be sensitive information, gents. Is that... Is that... So... So a... Uh, it is a dirty vodka martini. Oh, so that's dirty. That's yes. a dirty martini. Does it get more dirtier than that? I mean, I yeah. you add more yeah. olive juice. But like, I what? just put a splash in for you guys. Yeah, this you didn't make mine the dirtiest. You no. know how I like my martinis. You also didn't. You're fighting off sickness and I, I, put, I put in more I put olive in, juice than vodka. I put in olive juice comparative to the amount of vodka and vermouth yeah. I gave you. Okay. I briefly considered stopping and picking up the very first. Uh, commercial sponsor of the uh, James Bond film universe, Red Stripe. Um, oh, yeah. Didn't know if you if you remember that. Um, James Bond has a conversation with his buddy Quarrel um, and their good uh, friend bartender Pussfellow, because James Bond names make all of the sense, uh, in a uh, wooden shed filled with red, crate, cra- red stripe crates. <laughs> I've got a personal story with Red Stripe. I went to Jamaica when I was a kid, and uh, the drinking age there is much more lax. And our tour guide gave my brother and I, who were just, you know, barely 14, uh, Red Stripes. And I'm looking at my parents like, tell me I don't have to do this. (laughs) And they're like, "Eh, it's so funny. It's like, I don't want to do this. You're supposed to give me this out. Uh, I don't want to be forced to, to drink in front of a weird, you know, weird guy we paid to show us around. Okay, so, Jafer, who's going first? All right. The first match is Ben versus Chris. All right. If you could go ahead and hand me that. What do you got there, Ben? It is a brown box from Q Branch. Okay. Let's, uh, I wonder what's inside. Let me open this up. It's the criteria. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Let's see here. There's a note attached to it that says, try to bring this back in one piece. The first criteria, which theme would make the better karaoke cover? And the second criteria, who has the most egregious destruction of Q-Sector government-issued gear? All right. All right. I'm I'm already ready. Okay. Well, you pick first, so that's fortunate. Okay. I am going Brosnan, and I'm going The World Is Not Enough. Okay. Tomorrow Never Dies. It's a bras off, gentlemen. Brosnan Jafar. I believe you mean Pierce Brosnan, Order of the British Empire. Uh, oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> Are you are you wondering right now? Did Ben look up everybody's honorifics? Yes, he did. That, it's most of them, right? Uh, only three. Is it Connery, Moore, and Brosnan? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, Lazenby did one. And Dalton, he, yeah. yeah, Dalton did two. But and Craig, Craig, Craig will get his. Craig is yeah. yeah Craig will, and Craig you're forgetting the most important. Dame Judi Dench, Order of the Companions of Honor. Dame of the British Empire and Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Hmm. Okay. Oh, she's, in a, she's a supporter of the arts. How lovely. Well, you know. Uh, by the way, ditto. All of those people, also mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. 
So, Ben, you're first up. Yep. Which theme makes the better karaoke cover? Uh, well, The World Is Not Enough is garbage, and I mean that in the best possible way. You do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is from, you know, the era where uh, they're getting interesting contemporary bands to perform mm-hmm. the, the Bond themes. It started, uh, it was hit or miss with more. Uh, they did, uh, I, I think they did okay during uh, Dalton. But the, the Brosnan era themes are, well, they're three for four. <laughs> um, which is pretty good as far as Bond goes. It is a fun song. It's got that nice driving beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guys, I, I literally just got Ben's garbage pun from earlier. <laughs> a little slow on the uptake today. That martini. I, I can just definitely see myself standing in a uh, a karaoke bar that even though it's been a few years since you could do it, still smells of cigarettes. And just, the world is not enough. But it's such a perfect place to start my love. That feeling when you can't tell if it's out of tune or if that's the original recording. <laughs> I watched that. <I, laughs> yeah, it's fine. Okay. Do, okay. Do Chris, show. it is a fun, it is a great song. So I think that my argument is going to hinge on... Uh, so I, I, should, I should start sort of a little bit earlier in the process. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies excellent film um the theme song done by cheryl crow um i caught some hints of what would probably eventually aspire snake eater that's just kind of like a a side thing like this this is one of the songs that like that 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 is the most targeted statement you've made (laughs) to win my affection and approval in our entire friendship chris okay honest honestly do not judge me based on the strength of that one. I'm just, it's a fun fact. I wanted to bring up Snake Eater just in case we talked about it later on because Snake Eater is fun. I am surprised your bear didn't try to draft Snake Eater. I thought about it. <laughs> it would have been a better pick than everything or nothing, but I knew I couldn't get Snake Eater. I'm ready to talk about everything or nothing. <laughs> I'm afraid about that, actually. Um, so I'm, so... What I'm willing to bet is that if you were go if you were to go to all of the um, the Kare OK bars, um, didn't you know that means empty orchestra? Isn't that so haunting? <laughs> I don't even remember what that's from. I just know it's from something. I'm willing to bet that if you went to all of the uh, still smelling like smoke karaoke bars and did a survey of how many times a song by a band called Garbage had been played, um, and how many times a song by Sheryl Crow uh, has been played that Sheryl Crow would come out way on top. And so just by... Might we say Garbage would only be happy when it rained their songs (laughs) in karaoke? (laughs) Might we say someone who picked Garbage over Sheryl Crow in a most karaoke plays contest is a stupid girl? (laughs) Oh man, you're 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 laying these garbage puns down real hard. Might we say that someone who made that terrible decision might smack their lips so hard they are colored cherry? Oh, boy. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) You insulted garbage to the wrong person. (laughs) I didn't insult garbage at all. 
<laughs> I'm saying um, garbage is for connoisseurs, and I have to. I feel like I have to add in, in quotation marks. Garbage. The band is for connoisseurs, not garbage. The substance. What you got against Oscar? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that um, while I will not say that garbage doesn't put up a really cool Bond theme, I think that um, Tomorrow Never Dies is a lot simpler of a melody. Um, it's got a much more memorable hook. Um, the artist is probably more recognizable to your average karaoke um, denizen. And so I think that uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is probably going to make for the better karaoke song. I'm torn here. Uh, are you burnt? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Wait a second. Can you help him? He's bent. <laughs> um, that was a Matchbox the, Twenty joke, guys. Yeah, that's great. I love. I love that song. <laughs> the world is not enough. Is one of my favorite Bond themes. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that song. I love that song when that movie came out. I still listen to that song occasionally. Um, I very vividly remember the music video for that song. Um, when it came out with um, the stage play and like the android bomb thing that ended up being an Austin Powers plot later, um, <laughs> we'll talk about Austin Powers in a little bit. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure we'll get around to Austin Powers. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, the Cheryl Crow tune is probably uh, it's definitely more accessible for people as a karaoke pick. Let me read the exact wording of this. Would make the best karaoke cover. I think Cheryl Crow's is more accessible, but it lacks the super belt moments that you really love. You're, you're, the, everyone who does karaoke loves Don't Stop Believing, and I hate it when people cover Don't Stop Believing, be absolutely clear. But it has like that really strong belting out moment where you're just giving it everything, and the world is not enough has that literally in every chorus. Tomorrow Never Dies also has that. It does, <laughs> but it is a lot slower to start, and there's a lot less of that in it. Okay. You're picking your favorite band, and that's cool. I, I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> I am picking the band I like more. Um... Also, I can't get Kid Rock out of my head whenever anyone talks about Cheryl Crow, and that's not your fault, and I tried to forget, but I can't. Well, you should put the picture away. Uh, fuck it. Chris gets the point. <laughs> ben ruined it. Ben ruined it for himself right before I said it. Needs to learn to keep his mouth shut. Chris gets the point. Next criteria. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> my God damn it. Was it worth it, Ben? Was it worth it? Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. As long as as long as we can agree that it wasn't. Okay. Whose most egregious destruction of Q sector government issued gear? Who had the most egregious destruction of Q sector government issued gear? Chris. Um, I have uh, I guess uh, to, I I want to submit something and see if if it will uh if it will if if the definitions that we're working on will will accept it. Okay. In the beginning of Tomorrow Never Dies, um, an entire um, naval carrier is destroyed, 
technically that's government issued. Am I allowed to claim that one? I think it, it is not Q sector <laughs> sure. government issued. Yeah, and I, I don't I think Bond's know. not involved. I didn't think so. Also, I am two martinis in, <laughs> <laughs> which mar- is probably part of why I, I, I feel so cavalier about losing that last one. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, so you, you need a Martini then. So, yeah. Okay, so so barring yeah, barring um, barring the the ship at the beginning, um, James Bond um, eschews his uh, classic Aston Martin in this film, as he does in others, but in this one he does it for a BMW, uh, and specifically it's a BMW that can be driven remotely. Uh, off of his cell phone. Yeah, a Sony Xperia, if memory serves. <laughs> Something like Something that. Something like yeah. that, yeah. Um, and it's funny because uh, although the cell phone is notably dated, um, it's one of those things that has I buttons. think I had that phone, yeah. Like the flip <laughs> up for the full screen with the buttons on the bottom, the messenger phones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so while, while that concept is dated, uh, strangely enough... Um, Real life has caught up to James Bond. We now have both autonomously driven cars and uh, just in the news recently, I heard something about uh, essentially like remotely driven cars as a kind of in-between concept for people uh, to to fall back on when their you know automatic driving isn't working 100%. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, James Bond, um, even before James Bond gets his hands on this, um, Q... Uh, manages to back it up and hit the bumper on the crate that it came shipped in. Um, That's a little foreshadowing, isn't it? (laughs) It's a little foreshadowing um, because what James Bond ultimately does to this BMW uh, is essentially um, use it as movable cover during a uh, very dramatic uh, shootout in a parking garage. Mm -hmm. Um, He hops into the thing through the back window and drives it in the rear seat is a backseat driver, um, and they shoot multiple missiles um, at this thing. They totally destroy both of the windows, all of the the paneling on it, um, and uh, he ends up crashing it into an Avis rental office. If memory <laughs> serves, let me let me double check just to make sure we don't get caught on that one. Um. I, this is the Bond movie I've watched most it, recently it, it, outside yeah. of this draft. <laughs> I'm, it might not be Avis. It might have been like, I'm pretty sure it was the red and white logo. I'm pretty sure it was Avis. Yeah. If it wasn't Avis, it was hers. And <laughs> yeah, it was It was a rental car place for sure. Yeah. But he, I mean, he literally uses this car as a human shield, like mm-hmm. a car human shield. Um, and Can then, you look up how much that BMW's worth just to put a dollar amount on it out of curiosity? <laughs> yes. So what the BMW Z8? No, it's no. a yeah, it's a U, UI or something like that. Hold on. Uh, 750IL. Um, let's let's find out. Yeah, just a market price on that car. Um, figuring that it's the Bond one, so it's gadgeted out and stuff. Quarter of a mil sound reasonable. Um. Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable. Ben, quarter of a mil sound good? Um, sure. Okay. What do you got? Okay. So, uh, at the end of, uh, at the end of, uh, The World Is Not Enough. The World Is Not Enough. No, uh, you won't, or what's yours? Sorry. Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, he drives his car into a building. 
in the middle of The World Is Not Enough, James Bond's car gets cut in half by a giant helicopter saw. A helicopter saw? Yes. It is a helicopter with saw blades hanging out that they used to cut. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Cut lines for uh, <laughs> for the, the, the Russian oil pipeline, and they cut his car in half. And it is not the Roger Moore car where that's okay. The car is fucked. <laughs> oh, brief brief inter- intermission, by the way. Uh, you can own that BMW now for a pretty reasonable market price of $5,600. <laughs> Cars hold their value like cheese, but worse. Yeah. Cheese, cheese goes up in value as long as you take value. care of it and yeah. so do cars this, Car, it, sorry cars the, hold their value like milk cars hold their, val- their value like craft singles <laughs> it cheese never product. changes sure. if you you've both destroyed cars for me yes uh, I'm gonna assume no, one has crashed a car crashed a car from like a three story drop you have both sufficiently destroyed vehicles okay and that is why for the piece de resistance the boat Q's fishing boat <laughs> oh no he destroys it during the cold open <laughs> I mean if we if we want to <laughs> if, if we're taking a wholesale thing then I have other things that James Bond destroyed in this film do they come from Q Yes. <laughs> what else did he? What, what what else of cues did he destroy? Um, I mean, I don't. I don't want us to. I want us to go like one to one. To be clear, I think. I think that picking picking one and then and then fighting. It's it. okay. You, uh, <laughs> I, I'm I did just saying my, your cars are of yeah. equal value. I did my rebuttal it's the to same your car. Decade. Do your rebuttal to Q's boat for his retirement, Chris. Okay. Okay. He's <laughs> just going to be living on his government pension. Fishing in a boat armed with torpedoes. <laughs> and 007 ruined it. Your Desmond Llewellyn is solid. Oh, grow up, 007. That's <laughs> <sighs> the reason I don't drink those often. Did, did it not get stirred enough? Was that last just a mouthful of vermouth? Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> vermouth is disgusting alone. Oh. oh. I mean, I think that if this question were collateral damage total, um, Bond's got some, some, some good value statements to make in terms of, like, disruption to trade by taking down a major media conglomerate. Um, but... If we're going by Q gadgetry, I don't know if Q's boat counts. Um, that's the boat had missiles. It had missiles on it. Was it his personal boat? Yes. Okay. It was his fishing boat for his retirement. <laughs> Why did it have missiles on it if it was for his retirement? Because it's Q. He's okay. insane. He is. Yeah. There's, let's, there's, let's... there's no shame in a well-earned loss, Chris. <laughs> you both destroyed beautiful vehicles. <laughs> ben just destroyed two vehicles. <laughs> And those are high ticket items. It's fine. We'll just go to a third criteria. <laughs> no, no. To, to, yeah. To be to be to be clear, I think I have lost this one. I think that um, if we could count the Harley Davidson that Bond rides across some rooftops, maybe I'd have a shot. But that he just kind of found. Yeah. <laughs> he also does blow up a stealth boat, but it's not Q's stealth. Well, and then boat. he also he also destroys a multi million dollar GPS transponder thing. You know, mm-hmm. like thing that's like it's priceless. 
And also, one of the giant signs they fit on buildings. There's no way those things are cheap. <laughs> oh, yeah, of, of Elliot Dude's head. Yeah, yeah his head. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, of not the bad guy, bad guy. Not the bad no. guy, bad guy. Well, he was he was the bad yeah, guy. Yeah, Elliot Carver. Elliot Carver was the the, the, was the bad guy. Wasn't there someone behind? Am I remembering no. that wrong? No. no, he's the bad guy, bad guy. I think you okay. might be thinking of Goldeneye. Okay. All right. So, back me... into Q's box. All right, and there's a little transponder in here that has a piece of paper sticking out of it. Beep, 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 Worst second act plot diversion. Okay. So where where did your plot go terribly wrong? What what happened in the second act needlessly? I go first, correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, I can tell you in two words where the plot to The World Is Not Enough goes off the rails. And those two words are Christmas Jones. <laughs> During the second act, Bond is pretending to be a, a professor of nuclear physics with a terrible Russian accent talking to Dr. Christmas Jones, nuclear physicist. Is that... Denise Richards, am I remembering that? Denise that Richards. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tomorrow Never Dies breaks one of the cardinal rules of James Bond, which is that James Bond's girlfriends always die before the film starts. Um, and this one does not have. It, one of his girlfriends manages to, to survive like from several years prior. Um, what, what are you looking at me confused about? By I'm now? just trying to remember what character you're talking about. But Terry yeah. Hatcher. Yes, Terry Hatcher, oh, who okay. plays, yeah, who yeah, plays yeah. Paris Paris Carver, um, the wife of the um, media mogul um, Elliot Carver, which, can I say, by the way, that watching this, um, <laughs> watching Tomorrow Never Dies um, in the same uh, rough political era that has seen Steve Bannon as an insider in the White House... Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's some there's some feels there, um, colluding with the Russians. Even um, <laughs> don't want to get too political. Uh, so M uh, basically says, "Oh, this evil media mogul dude. Oh, you used to date his wife, right?" And Bond says, "Of course I did." <laughs> um, and uh, he goes and he meets her at this big gala, and essentially the reason that things didn't go well between the two of them is that he left and then forgot to say goodbye um this is terry hatcher just just for, mm-hmm. so we're remembering who is like a um paragon yeah she's lois lane she's lois lane she's a wonderful lady and i think that james bond's uh the second act of tomorrow never dies goes off the rails because james bond not calling um Paris, Paris Carver back stretches believability to such a degree that I am not comfortable with. I think I have to give it to Ben. Um, the Christmas Jones second act is fucking miserable. Who doesn't call back Terry Hatcher in the 90s? Bond, if anyone Bond. It's kind of his thing. Um, and it's not that that is a mis- isn't a mistake. It is. But Bond pretending to be an, a Russian nuclear physicist is probably one of the worst parts of Bond on in cinema. Yeah. Like it's it's, it's fucking miserable. To be to be honest, um, the second act of my movie fucking rocks. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, sweet. it's really good. There's like the torture dude, and he's like trying to fake the yeah. death and everything. It's so good. I love that scene. The torture dude, and then the inexplicable henchman who was his student. He's like, <laughs> I'm gonna make up for you killing my torture daddy by torturing you more. <laughs> All right, Ben gets a victory. Yep, giving him two points and Chris one, and we move on to the next match, which is Chris versus Jafar. All right. I will reach into this parcel from Q Branch. Find some criteria. All right, what do we got? Which movie is the best travel log? So we're going to a lot of exotic locations. Which one do you think is the best? And what's the next one? Uh oh. <sighs> Okay, well, I guess I have to put this one back. What did you do? Uh, I've got a... Uh, you didn't even say his name this time. Yeah, I've got a message from the anonymous Draft the Universe Commissioner. Look out. As your Bond film's henchman stalks down an alleyway, prepared to strike, a bright light gleams from behind him. It's CIA agent Aretha Franklin here to save Bond's ass. What henchman will survive the longest now that the tables are turned? Okay. I'm going to go with the man with the golden gun. I'm going Moonraker all the way. It's a Moore-off. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Roger Moore, Knight Commander of the British Empire? Jesus. Off. Is Roger Moore's title better than James Bond's? <laughs> uh, James Bond actually turns down... Um, in the book, The Man with the Golden Gun, <laughs> I believe the same title. Mm -hmm. I would need to research that, and I'm not going to. Which movie is the best travel log? The best travel log. Um, so, Moonraker takes us uh, quite a few places. Um, obviously, we start off in London. Uh, from London... We fly to California, where we meet uh, Corinne DeFore, probably the shortest-lived Bond girl of all time. Uh, so from from there, we go to California to the uh, the site of the Moonraker um, uh, factory. Uh, from the Moonraker factory, uh, we go to we go to Venice. Yes, indeed. Um, where Bond. Um, tests out his uh, standard issue, every secret agent gets this um, amphibious motor gondola, <laughs> um, which inflates and then goes up onto the ground. Um, so after Venice, uh, we go to Rio, um, where Jaws, in a ridiculously oversized clown costume, attempts to murder Bond's um, parade girlfriend. Um, <laughs> uh, from Rio, of course... Uh, we go to the secret base of Drax, the Bond villain. And then from there, I think you guys know where you go next, right? Which is into fucking space aboard Drax's bizarrely referential to Star Wars space station. <laughs> Jafar, how do you beat space? Well, um, the man with the golden gun had an extra year of production than most Bond films of the era, including Moonraker. And with that extra time, they actually went to a bunch of places. So Man with the Golden Gun was extensively shot in Thailand, Hong Kong, and Macau. Macau! Macau. So 
they spend a lot of time in this movie in Thailand. Um, we see lots of actual Thai culture. They show Thai Thai dancers. They go around and do a lot of things like that. You see them walking the streets um, in a handful of places, including Hong Kong. We also get to see the sunken RMS Queen Elizabeth, where MI6 has built a secret listening base in semi-international waters, Mm -hmm. Um, although they owned Hong Kong at the time, so maybe not as international as my brain was just telling me it must have been to work. Um, And they actually did a stunt on that ship. Um, That's the thing that Man with the Golden Gun has over Moonraker in this regard is, yeah, Moonraker showed us space. Man with the Golden Gun went to these places. Um, Especially at the very end, Scaramanga's island fortress is fucking gorgeous. Um, If I had to choose one place in the world to get stranded, it would be there. Um, It is... Well, assuming I had knick-knack Tabasco and everything. Uh... (laughs) <laughs> Everything you need. Dude, Nick Nick is so creepy. <laughs> we will cover that in Criteria number two. <laughs> Nick 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 is very creepy. Um, so, I mean, that's the only thing I can really say to beat going to space is we actually went to these places in the in uh, the Man with the Golden Gun. You could just take Bourdain over Bond and have him narrate and make a decent travel film. Now, I think if we're going to make a correct me if I'm wrong. We're going to make a travel film with the man with the golden gun. We follow the man who's there on vacation. It's true. Sergeant J.W. Peppa. We do follow Sergeant J.W. Peppa on vacation. Fourth person on the cast list for Live and Let Die. Uh, is he really? It's yes. by order of appearance, right? No, it is not. He doesn't appear until about two, like an hour and a half into that Ugh, movie. I don't know. Okay, that's... <laughs> listen, I, is, didn't, I didn't order the credits for yeah, the no, no, no. I just... I saw that, and it made me angry. It should. <laughs> I wanted um, to share that. Man, so, having just watched Man with a Golden Gun, there is a moment in there that made me cringe, uh, because Sergeant J.W. Pepper is in the market... And there's and he's just being horribly racist the entire time. That just, is what he does. It's what he does. He is a caricature of a southern gentleman in the '60s who is racist as fuck. Him and Strong Thurman are fucking boys. Um, it is bad. I do not want to associate with this gentleman at all. And um, his wife is looking at elephant sculptures, and he dismissively goes, "Hun, what Democrats?" And I'm just like, "Oh God, things have changed." <laughs> Okay. I mean, so just to, just to point out, my my villain Drax um, is basically if you took Elon Musk, except he has a beard, he's Hitler, and he really has a thing for very fit, coked out, um, mostly like ninety percent white people. There's like yeah. ten 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 percent black people thrown in there to try and trick you into thinking that he isn't racist, but he's very racist. I mean, he's more forward thinking than Hitler. It's the lowest bar. <laughs> yeah, literally the lowest. Yeah. Okay, so I I I appreciate the argument you made, Jafar, but space. <laughs> he doesn't actually go to space. No, but yeah, and Scaramanga's Island the... was like ninety percent soundstage. So come no, on. No, they shot on site. For all of the mirrors inside of it. Oh yeah, the interiors. <laughs> I'm not talking about the interiors. I'm talking about the beach island that they're hanging out on. The island um, beach. 
rather, <laughs> but cough syrup, man. For for us, it, it's a movie that takes us to space and it shows us the space shuttle before the space shuttle actually launched. I'm going with Moonraker. Okay. Thank you. Which, who? I had to pick Moonraker. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you won't have to again. Okay. So, criteria two. Look out! As your Bond film's henchman stalks down an alleyway to prepare to strike, a bright light gleams from behind him. It's CIA agent Aretha Franklin, here to save Bond's ass. What henchman will survive the longest now that the tables have turned? So let's let's be clear for we are arguing by seconds. Right. Well, here's the knickknacks thing. Knickknacks survives. He hides out on the boat and he's even he even survives the ending. He's in a fishing cage hanging from the mast of the sailing boat that no one is sailing but is going to the right place. That's a whole other thing though. That was just a personal what the hell was going on here. Um, you need a crew to sail an old sailing boat. And Nick Knack was. Are you trying up. to tell me that you can't have a crew of two that stops running a boat to have sex? So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nick Knack, in his one fight with Bond, because Nick Knack is a manipulator. Nick Knack hides behind the scenes. He controls everything. He's in controlling the mirror maze. You know, he's got his like CCTVs everywhere. He's mm-hmm. watching everything. He's keeping his hands on everything. He's in control. From the background. Yes. Um, and when you pull him out, he runs, he hides under tables, he throws booze at you hoping you go away, he destroys, like, two cases of wine throwing it at James Bond who's fending it off with a chair. <laughs> um, I think what happens is Nick Knack sees that glow, runs for the control room, and hides in his safe room until Aretha Franklin either gets tired and has to go to bed, presumably. She's an older lady. Uh, she needs some rest. Or is determined that he's not worth justice's standards to be brought in and just lets it go. All right. <clears throat> I'm going with my man Jaws. Um, now, ignoring the obvious strength of Jaws, which is that uh, Moonraker was his second film. For henchmen, that's nearly 100% more of a lifespan than they get. Um, Jaws, I like to think of him as Andre the Giant, except with metal teeth. And from Detroit. Yes, from Detroit. Um, not, not Jaws, but uh, Peter Kill. Yes. Actually from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's, here's a, uh, a list of ways that... Richard Keel? I think Richard Keel. Richard Keel. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, here's a list of ways that Jaws uh, is almost killed, but inexplicably not injured in Moonraker. Um, he skydives without a parachute. That is true. That happens. He lives. Um, he um, chases James Bond on a boat. His boat goes over a gigantic waterfall. He lives. Um, <laughs> let me see, where's the next one? Um, Is it the cable right. car? Oh, right, no, no. There's a, <laughs> I, I skipped one in the sequence, sorry. Um, survives a gondola crash. <laughs> um, 
including at the end being pinned under like a 50 ton metal gear that is somehow I, I said metal gear and I didn't mean to metal go. gear metal gear like an actual metal gear it's like a gigantic metal gear it's like <laughs> seven feet tall and he's pinned under it and he's like pushing it off of himself but then his like blonde pigtailed girlfriend comes and they play the da 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 they literally play that in Moonraker I'm not kidding and he falls in love Mm-hmm. And then he goes to space, and then he turns on Drax and helps save the day. And then him and his girlfriend, he has a girlfriend somehow, um, they they crack a bottle of champagne in the space station. He says his only line, which is, here's to us, in perfect, unaffected by metal teeth English. Um... He then deorbits in a space station that is missing most of its critical parts. And he lives, ostensibly because he found a girlfriend and found love. He may have found those things, but one thing he didn't find that Knickknack has is respect. Jaws betrays his boss, turns on tracks. To come to the side of good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Knickknack, a servant by nature, um, is so ashamed at the defeat of his uh, boss that he attacks someone that he knows is his superior in combat. Doesn't he try to convince Bond to kill Scaramanga so that he can keep the island? He tries to convince <laughs> Bond. Okay. This, is, this is a reoccurring theme in the movie, is that he is setting up, because in the very beginning, he brings in the other gangster to try and kill Scaramanga. That's what Scaramanga wants him to do. Scaramanga is looking for the challenge. That's why he's going, gets Bond to the island in the first place. It's okay. all set up so that he can have the fight that he desires. You know, he's looking for the challenge and the thrill. I see. Okay. So it's not, I, I, he did that, but I don't think he did it Genuinely, I don't think he actually... He clearly didn't want the island, because the first thing he does when his boss dies is gets in the boat and tries to kill Bond. He didn't care about that stuff. That was just him trying to get Bond ready for the fight his boss deserved. Okay. I've already... I've reached my decision. And... Jafar, I really, really appreciate your argument. But I have one question for you. Who is the henchman in Everything or Nothing? The video game you picked? What does that have to do with this? No, who is it? That's not what I picked, Ben. Who is it? Ben, that's not what I picked. Don't take my other picks and use them against me. It is that's Jaws. Right. So now he is in two Bond movies and a video game. Jaws is a survivor. He's going to talk to Miss Aretha Franklin. They're going to say, Oh, hey, other side of Woodward, let's go get some conies. Oh, yeah. I totally didn't make that argument. They're both Detroiters. Yeah. And so, much like much like Batgirl, they're not going to fight. Put in a cage. Chris gets a decisive victory. <laughs> um, it is Jafar versus Ben. Chris, could you reach into that missive from Q Branch and find out what our criteria are going to be? Oh, there are some cow chops in here. It's not surprising. <clears throat> All right, number one. Which is the worst film to introduce somebody to the franchise? And number two, 
You are the film's villain. Write the Craigslist ad for your henchman. I'm going to go with Skyfall. Okay, Skyfall, sure. Ben? I'm going to go with The Living Daylights. Wow. All right. Which is the worst film to introduce someone to the franchise? Skyfall is very referential to previous Bond films. There's a lot in that movie that harkens back to all of the previous movies. It was the 50th anniversary film, and so there are consistent references um, in both cinematography, in plot, in plot devices like the Aston Martin, the, uh, the radio trigger from Goldfinger, all kinds of stuff, um, just peppered throughout this movie. Um, it is also Judy Dench's farewell as M, and there are a lot of references to her tenure in it. Um, I mean, you could you could watch Skyfall and has your first Bond film and appreciate it and go, okay, maybe I can watch the rest of these, but you're not really going to truly get Skyfall unless you've seen most other, at least probably two thirds of the Bond films. <clears throat> okay. okay. The Living Daylights villain's uh, plan is almost incomprehensible. It is a Russian general who fakes a uh, defection so that his uh, the boss of the Russian uh, Secret Service does not realize he's stolen $50 million to, a, to pay to an arms dealer that uh, he's secretly working with. Uh, so that that arms dealer can steal him back from MI6 that he faked effects to, so that they can use that money they've stolen to buy diamonds, so that they can fly to Afghanistan, still pretending to be a Russian general, and use that those diamonds to buy opium. It is almost impossible to follow. I think I fell asleep in the middle of that. It it that's probably about right, but it falls into. My favorite oops-a-daisy of the 80s. The last third of the movie, James Bond is being helped by the uh, by the Mujahideen Taliban. It is the same problem that Rambo 3 falls into, where it's these are these are glorious freedom fighters taking on the the Soviets who've invaded their homelands. <laughs> and now in retrospect, it's like Oh no! Oh no! These these uh these these people they're they're the same ones we're fighting now, and we trained them. We gave them money. James Bond helped them attack a Russian base. It's the story of Western civilization, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just. It, it oh is... no! We supported a tribal force and overthrowing a dictator, and then installed a worse dictator, so they hate us now. <laughs> it is. It is the. Uh, the sort of thing that a lot of people, if they see it, will go, oh no, this is problematic. And it's, uh oh, this is problematic mixed with an incomprehensible Bond film. Okay. Fair. I feel like that has a lot more to do with needing to be introduced to the 80s beforehand rather than needing to be introduced to James Bond beforehand. Okay, Ben? Um. I don't know, I feel like uh, it's an introduction to the series, 
And if you show them, show somebody this movie, they are not going to be interested in seeing another Bond film. Having followed all the Bond movies, I liked it. I liked the movie, but I was willing to give it a lot of leeway knowing I like Bond movies. I think just by virtue of, of considering both of these films, which one would I rather introduce the series to somebody on? I, I, think, I think it goes to, um, I think this question rather, which is the worst film to introduce someone to, goes to um, The Living Daylights. Um, it's, like Ben said, it's, it is pretty incomprehensible. Sky, Skyfall is a legitimately good film that you might not have the context, but I think that watching Skyfall, you go back and figure out the context. I don't know if you go back after uh, The Living Daylights. So Ben, ben gets this one. You are the film's villain. Write the Craigslist ad for your henchman. Uh, so the the secondary villain of The Living Daylights is uh, is the arms dealer Whitaker, who is played by uh, Joe Don Baker, who uh, later comes back to the James Bond franchise. And uh, so it would be simply wanted... Tunisian mercenaries who like uh, painting mini fig- uh, figurines pretending to be a military organization and uh, insane Jodan Baker rants. I think you're going to have people lying about the door. Wanted dudes to shoot stuff on deserted island expensive scotch provided. <laughs> He does have a 50-year-old McAllen on. Just hanging out. <laughs> yep. Just hanging out. Um, I think that... that you, that's how Craigslist ads work. I think the incomprehensibility of your plot works against you in this one, Ben. I think, I think yeah. henchmen are going to go where the scotch is. So, Jafar, that one goes to you, and we go to a third round. Which film has the best villain? Oh boy. <laughs> and you don't get to cast somebody who was helping Bond as that villain. Well, no, but it's it's a tag team. <laughs> it's it's I go first. Silverman is such a good villain. Um, Javier Bardem does such a fantastic job in that film. Um, just how tortured he is, how badly he wants to kill M when he's captured in MI6 and he removes his like jaw with fake cheek to show the damage the bad cyanide capsule did, man. Ugh. He is so good in that movie. He's one of the best, if not the best, one-off Bond villain. Ben? Alright, um, so the the main villain in uh, The Living Daylights is uh, General Koskov. And I just think he's fun because he's betraying everyone at the same time. Well, every time he gets caught being like, Hey, you saved me. This was the plan all along. Uh, I was totally going to come back to you and betray that other guy. And so it is nice to watch a Bond film where there isn't a villain with some lofty goals of world domination. He just wants to steal some money and buy some heroin. Uh, and you know what? If you want to help him do that, come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. 
much as I like that description. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, this is... This, you want to sell some drugs? We'll sell, we'll sell some guns and some drugs. Silva is a much better Bond villain. <laughs> You're right. You are right. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, will, I will take the luck of the draw on that one. The luck of the draw was, a, was strong on that one. <laughs> Earning me a victory, um, giving me two points, and Ben one. After the first round of matches, Chris is in the lead with four points, Ben with three, and then I am in last currently with... All right. All right, time for the second round of matches. First up is Chris versus Ben. Let's do it to it. All right, I've got a secret message here coming straight from M with the criteria for round two. Okay. It's coming in. M is sending me the criteria for round two. I've got a wristwatch with uh, ticker tape like your mom used to label things. Oh, okay, cool. Um, first one is poorly explain your villain's master plan. Second criteria. We all know Bond takes the secret out of Secret Service. What is the most conspicuous thing about Bond in your film? Chris, you pick first. Hey, puss fellow, grab me a red stripe. I'm going with Dr. No. See, here we're hitting the, the tough bit. I've got three Bond movies left, and they are three movies I love. But I'm going to go with Casino Royale. Alright. Okay. Poorly explain your villain's master plan. I will say before I judge this, points on ridiculousness and brevity. Chris, you're up first. Uh, I'm going to do this in character as Dr. No. Okay. I stole $10 million from some Chinese people, spent a million dollars on a really weird aquarium, and now I'm going to... Destroy some rockets, I think. Yeah, that sounds good. You forget build a dragon car. <laughs> I also... I, brevity. Yeah, brevity. No, no, no. You're, you're right. I just... That is the most insane thing that happens in that movie. Uh, in in your I wanted, opinion. I wanted to make a joke about it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here is... Uh, Oh, why am I blanking on his name? Lashif's uh, Lashif's plan. Want to win at stocks? Murder. Want to win at poker? Murder. Fail at the previous two? How do you uh, answer these? Murder. Murder, Lashif wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you found the only person who would make that movie better if the bad if the bad guy was Angela Lansbury. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this to you, Chris, but you wanted for Ben. <laughs> Murderless she wrote. Okay, it's too perfect. Well, Ben Ben won me one uh, during the garbage round, so now we're even. Now we're even. Also, I think that's our our title, Murderless she wrote. <laughs> And it makes sense, because isn't it murder ellipsis, she wrote? Yeah. And ellipsis is the, the code for the door that he finds on all their cell phones. Oh, yeah. Huh. Okay. <laughs> but you're right, the, the plot of Dr. No is insane. It's like, uh, I have a bunch of money, so I'm going to crash some rocket ships. Oh, by the way, Spectre stands for Special Executive for Terror... Or, <laughs> For terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Um, 
It is the worst acronym. Yeah, it's uh, beyond, no, behind the shield. It is the worst initialism. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Uh, taking the secret out of Secret Service, what's the most conspicuous thing Bond does in your film? Ben, you go first. I'm just going to preface this by this is a unique situation because these are both Bond debuts for the old canon and the new. Sure. Um, so really, this is his first chance to blow his cover. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when Bond arrives at the, the Casino Royale, the first thing he does is completely ignore his cover name and his cover story with Vesper Lind. He goes up to the desk and he says, My name's Bond. You'll find the reservation under beach. <laughs> and his whole his, he has a reasoning for it but as Vesper points out it's fucking stupid and when the person who is secretly working for the bad guy thinks your plan is particularly dumb that means something <laughs> alright <laughs> having an active cover and blowing it sure um, near as I can tell at the beginning of Dr. No um there's not even a pretense that he's taking a cover name. Um, but I think that probably the most conspicuous thing that he does is in order to uh, foil Dr. No's plan to uh, topple the Mercury um, space launch, um, he overloads a nuclear reactor in Jamaica and causes a potentially centuries-long nuclear accident. <laughs> It's uh, a big no-no. Yeah, c- c- centuries of, of repercussions. Um, and he does this despite having plenty of other options um, available to him. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. is like, um, oh, okay, so I gotta, f- I gotta foil this plane here. Don't have a lot of time. Okay. Um, oh, okay. So there's a giant red arrow on this thing that controls this nuclear reactor that says danger. I'm gonna crank it up past there. That should get everybody's attention. And then the whole thing actually blows up. It just proves how little people in the 60s really understood about nuclear power. I mean, the old proverb goes, there's nothing so conspicuous as overloading a nuclear reactor. <laughs> I haven't heard that proverb. <laughs> you should probably read more, Ben. Chris gets the point. Uh, taking us to a, a third round. Yeah, and you, it, is, it is fair to point out that he does that, then kills Dr. No, and mm-hmm. then doesn't stop it he just runs away. <laughs> Elevator pitch me a spinoff for a non-Bond regular in your movie, prequel or sequel. We define non-Bond regular as someone who has made three or more appearances in Bond films or been played by two different actors and actresses. That, wait, so, like, wait, Felix what? doesn't count because Felix is in, like, six movies. You said three or more. Three or more. Yeah. Oh, we're, so, de- oh, we're defining so Bond jo- regulars. Bond yes. regulars. So Jaws, who's in two movies, would count. Yes. But anyone who shows up more than Jaws does not count. Because um, okay, so, the Felix movie writes itself. But it's the Q- Jeffrey Wright Phoenix, Felix movie. <laughs> which I would love to see. I know. Oh, fuck. Okay. Do you feel that's particularly unfair to narrow it down like that? That's how I submitted that criteria. I think that Felix is like the person who is 
probably supposed to be excluded from that. Like, yeah. literally anybody else I have no problems with. Yeah, I just, um, I didn't want to hear, like, an M movie or a Q movie that you could both pitch me the same thing for. Yeah. Um, and a Felix movie was just short of that. Yeah. That right. and the Russian guy from the Pierce Brosnan era is out as well. He's in too many. Mm-hmm. Okay, who's first? Chris? Chris is first. Yeah. Um, so it's the 1960s, um, and Dr. No happens to star, uh, a woman who can be fairly, uh, said, uh, to have perhaps jump-started the sexuality of the era, um, Ursula Andress? Yes. Andress. Andress. Ursula Andress. Um, what else was popular in the 60s? Uh, <laughs> what else was popular in the 60s? Oh, damn it. I, you've made me lose the thing <laughs> I was about to say. The British about, invasion? My, me pantomiming, doing coke, drinking, and marijuana <laughs> made you lose your attention. I'm sorry. Oh. What else was popular in the 60s? The variety show. Ah, that's true. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that um, what I'm going to pitch is uh, Honey Riders Variety Show. It's sponsored by Red Stripe. Hooray beer. <laughs> um, and her lovable number two is none other than the, uh, as far as I can tell, totally out of his depth bartender, um, Pussfellow. <laughs> so yeah, so Pussfellow is her, is her, um, um, laughable number two, like her band leader or something. <laughs> her band leader, yeah. Okay. Um, and the uh, dominant sex icon of the uh, early to mid '60s gets her own variety show in character. Um, I'd imagine that probably every episode would include some type of uh, some type of skit with her in her bikini. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So my spinoff. Stars uh, Giancarlo Giannini <laughs> as uh, Mathis. It is his story of uh, being the only spy in was it Monaco? Where are they? Where's the casino right now? Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo. Yeah. So uh, when he talks to Bond, it's there is no we, it's only me, um, <laughs> and it is every every episode is some crazy problem that MI6 is like, how are we going to handle this? And he solves it like he solves his problem in, in the first one. You can bribe the the police chief, but that's too expensive. We just fake that we're already bribing, bribing the police chief and send that information to his deputy. So it is uh, a bunch of super serious uh, British spies running around and then Mathis being like, Eh, I know the funny way to do this. It is sort of like uh, a slightly more serious uh, The Man from Uncle or. Uh, um, okay. What is it? Uh, uh, get Smart. Okay. Uh, it's, it is Get Smart, but the guy knows he's being silly. The guy knows he's smart enough and he's doing it in a funny way because he's the only guy stationed here. <laughs> okay. I would, I would watch that show. <laughs> Um, compared to Chris's variety show, 
which sounds like something my dad would have made me watch <laughs> uh, in my early teens. Uh, <laughs> don't read into that. <laughs> Your early teens were in the 1960s. So I'm, I'm going to give that to Ben. Um, given that he pitched something that is a prequel or sequel, which was part of the criteria. Oh, I just totally fucking forgot about that. Seriously? <laughs> Attention to detail. <laughs> Mathis would have remembered. No, I... No, hold on a second. I, I said she does it in character. I just didn't say it happens afterwards, which is, like, the obvious assumption. Well, neither did he. His just... The variety show doesn't really didn't really feel like it took place in universe to me. That's all. Okay. Like it's a spin-off, it's supposed to be something different that adds some more world building to the general plot. And I feel like that's something Ben's show can achieve. I feel like you're just justifying your gut reaction, which is fine. I mean, y- yes, that's literally what you do when you judge. <laughs> Ben gets a victory, giving him two points, and Chris one point, meaning both of you are tied for five. <clears throat> I am at two, unless I beat both of you, then I have no chance at the finals. <laughs> unless, I guess I could decide... There's, there's ways. Of there's ways. Yeah. There's some screwing math that could work in my favor, but probably not. Regardless, both of your performances versus me will determine how this tie is broken. All right. Uh, next okay. up, Jafer versus Chris. And I'm reaching into Q's box. You're not getting them from the watch anymore? Uh, no. I I, I trust in the old ways. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris, you are lucky that Jafer has already used the man with the golden gun. Um, oh, most ridiculous What's the most patently insane stunt that Bob no. pulls in your film? <laughs> you blew your wad. And uh, best opening credit scene, theme song plus visuals. Okay. So patently insane stunt and uh, title sequence. I go first. I'm taking Goldeneye. Okay. Uh, my, I think my decision is made for me. I'm going with Spectre. All right. Okay. Okay, so Jafer, you go first. What is the most patently insane stunt that Bond pulls in your film? Skydiving without a parachute into a plane, getting into the plane and pulling it up in time to not crash into the mountain. Which was actually a stunt they did. <laughs> is that that? Yep. <laughs> Alright, uh, Chris? Um... I, th- I think there's one that you can you can pull here. In- interesting that there are two, both involving helicopters. Uh, okay, I mean, do one, and then I'll do my second one, and then you do your second one. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so, in the excellent opening scene of Spectre, um, James Bond, and, and this is all shot with one, one take throughout, which is really cool, um, James Bond goes up to the top of a building, and then he shoots some bad guys, and then he chases another bad guy after a big explosion, and then they get into a helicopter, and they have a 
five-minute fist fight in the back of a really small helicopter while that helicopter is wildly out of control um, over top of a crowd of literally millions of innocent people. Um, he ends up kicking both the bad guy and the pilot out of the helicopter and then pulling it up at the last second. Yeah, I feel it's important to know. They do a three, like, a loop-de-loop in that helicopter. Yeah, they do a bunch of really cool, <laughs> yeah. They actually... Which you shouldn't be able to do, but they did it! <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's just a really fast helicopter. Um, they, they actually, um, they recreate the 360 jump from uh, Man with a Golden Gun with that helicopter. If you look at it side by side, the helicopter follows the same path as the car does. Huh. Yeah. All right, uh, Jafari, your second stunt. Um, this is not a stunt in terms of deftifying stuntman, but this is one of the most insane stunts, as M would call it, that James Bond ever does, which is driving the tank through downtown Moscow, <laughs> um, just destroying countless buildings, um, killing untold number of people as he drives through tight alleyways destroying buildings. You're just a Russian dude taking a poop and all of a sudden <laughs> you get hit by a tank and don't know what's going on. Um, and then, um, God, what statue is it? It's a famous statue. It's the, the guy on the horse. There's a ton of statues with dudes on the Yeah, horses. I know. It's <laughs> the one wait, in Moscow. Wait. He like, he like runs over I've, the I've got something. I've got something. In post-Soviet Russia, tank toilets you. <laughs> oh no! If there's tank and toilet, there was something there. <laughs> okay. um, he runs over the pedestal of the statue, and it sits on top of the tank. And he continues yeah. driving around Moscow with the ta- this the giant bronze statue mm-hmm. on top of it until he crashes it into an overhang. Um, okay. Also filled with people. Yeah. James Bond doesn't have a lot. He doesn't have, like, a sense of collateral damage. It's like color blindness, except for the value of people's lives. He has that. Yeah. Um, my second um, stunt, uh, and read, read me the, the wording of it again, just so I'm clear. A patently insane stunt. Uh, he shoots a helicopter out of the sky with a pistol from a motorboat. That just doesn't work. And it's probably the weakest moment in the entire film, which otherwise I really like, because a handgun firing into the sky off the back of a very unsteady motorboat is not going to hit the avionics cluster of a helicopter. All right. Well, from my where I'm sitting in deliberations, uh, I think the uh, I I was definitely more impressed with your guys' first picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what what seals it for me uh, is I've seen oh no no pull up planes before I have never seen a helicopter 360 before <laughs> it was freaking insane Bond's done the I gotta pull up this plane before yeah but not by skydiving no, no, it not is by better running <laughs> off of a cliff on a motorcycle oh yeah it is and jumping off of the aforementioned motorcycle without a parachute skydiving to reach the plane and then getting into the plane to pull it up on time is not just pulling a plane up oh, on no, time oh no I understand and it is awesome I think the th- the the 
360 loop-de-loop helicopter wins, though. The 360 loop-de-loop helicopter was real cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's as insane of a stunt, because I doubt that that was actually something that occurred. I'm sure that was CGI. I'd have to look into it. I think, I think we might have slightly differing definitions of what stunt is, is being referred to. Yeah. There's an in-universe and out-of-the-universe thing. Uh, d- definition for that. So agreed. Um, so I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that most of those helicopter stunts were real. I'm sure they weren't done in sequence, but you can do a lot of weird things with a helicopter if it's going very fast. So okay, it looks like they actually did it, but then they superimposed it to be lower. Yo. Yeah, that was, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost certain. That's how yes. they do everything. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Best opening credit scene. Chris, you're first. Um, okay, so we're talking about the... With the music. Mm-hmm. And, the uh, and de facto James Bond music video. <laughs> um, so Spectre does something kind of cool with its opening credit scene. Um, besides being visually impressive up to the standard of visual effects of the, the day, which I think is probably... Uh, safe to say, that was what was happening during every time they did a Bond um, uh, theme scene. I don't know if if maybe there was one that was less impressive when it happened, but almost certainly they were all making as much use of existing technologies as they could. Um, but one thing that the opening credits scene does here um, is that it gives some really cool glimpses of what's going to happen in the film. Uh, it connects all of the past three films to Spectre, um, which is important because Spectre relies a lot on the past three films. Um, it does so even more hardcore than Quantum of Solace did, which is saying something because Quantum of Solace basically uh, failed on how related it was and how much you had to have kept the original plot of Casino Royale in. So you have uh, glimpses of like Vesper Lind, Mr. White, um, M, Silva, uh, Le Chief, all of the the villains that will be connected by the later plot threads. Um, you have some um, really cool uh, like um, uh, mausoleum, like Greco-Roman pillars being replaced by octopus tentacles. Uh, you have the Spectre logo showing up everywhere. You've got the silhouetted um, figure of um, who, who will later, later be um, revealed to be Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Um, against his, you know, table of Spectre minions and and uh, compatriots, um, so it kind of functions like a modern day shadow play, um, uh, or dumb dumb plays. On what I'm thinking of, uh, it gives you a couple of hints at what's to come. It does enough foreshadowing to tie together all of the previous films in such a way that when it does start referencing all of those things. Um, when they come later on, uh, it doesn't. It's not as jarring. You you you've gotten it. You understand that they're all connected, and like um, like the eight tentacled arms of an octopus. This film is going to be pulling from a lot of different directions. All right, uh, Jafar. Okay. Um, Goldeneye, the song, is fucking fantastic to the point where I literally can't say Goldeneye without hearing the in, in the back of my head <laughs> to this day mm-hmm. um besides that the artists performing Tina Turner with U2 sure I mean 
They've got 33 ga- Grammys combined. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of gold. Uh, I mean, it's one of the most... I'd say it's probably the third most iconic Bond theme out of all of them. Well, we won't go into that. But um, I mean, the only two I would put above it are Goldfinger and um, uh, Nobody Does It Better. Um, we can argue about yeah, that. We, we can argue about that a little bit. I'm not talking about which is better. I'm just iconic, associated with the series. Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die is yeah. on there, but Live and Let Die wasn't on AFI's 100 Best Songs from Cinema. Just saying. <laughs> I um, don't care what the band AFI thinks. <laughs> I don't care what the band AFI thinks either. It's, it's, all, it's all garbage um, to me, guys. <laughs> uh, besides that, um, GoldenEye's opening credits has perhaps one of the most interesting jobs and stories to tell in all of Bond cinema. This is the first movie back after the multi-year hiatus after Dalton. The opening scene takes place during the Cold War. The rest of the movie takes place after the Cold War. And how they bridge that gap is during the opening credits, they show the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Um, So to this theme, you see the world literally change. Um, over the course of time that had passed between the last Bond film and the current one. Uh, statues of Lenin being torn down, um, Russian soldiers marching and stopping and dropping their guns, all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. Um, it doesn't do as much foreshadowing as Spectre. Spectre was, did a really co- cool job with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the combination of what between the two, the better song and having to bridge that story gap and tell the end of the Cold War over three minutes with Tina Turner behind you is a cinematic cinematic tour de force. It's three minutes, fucking awesome. Three minutes with Tina Turner behind you sounds like... <laughs> like, like that's some, the name of Amy's sex tape? Yeah. No, like, like, that sounds like a, like a Reddit creepypasta, like an urban legend. <laughs> like, don't say her name three times into a mirror. Um... I'll only say just to address the music, because we have uh, The Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith. Is that the right name? Yes. Sam Smith, yeah. Um, I think that that song, while not as um, easily associated with its film like Goldeneye um, or Tomorrow Never Dies, um, what what I wanted to point out there is that um, the current Craig films don't uh, go so heavy on the nose. They don't use the title of the film. Um, and interestingly enough, I think that Sam Smith as a musician represents a return to the same, um, sensibilities of music that saw, um, uh, more classic Bond themes, like nobody does it better. Um, but he does it of course, in a way that is very contemporary and, kind of bridges the gap between the really old um, kind of very standard cinematic theme songs of the 60s through 70s Bonds um, and the modern day theme songs of the uh, three previous films. I think he kind of bridges it and that brings a lot of cool um, uh, sorry I'm like (sighs) and that brings a lot of cool symbolism to how uh, Spectre is really bringing James Bond 
back around to the beginning where like he started off in a, tu in a tuxedo you know with his gun very suave um they're finally bringing him back it's like a return to form and the song kind of complements that so i feel like we were both very earnest on this yeah yeah so, and good as this one's going a little long so i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna good shut it down now uh i didn't need a rebuttal it's cool uh i think the the specter theme is uh is a is a good one but i don't even think it's the best craig one i jaffer is right like the the opening title sequence to golden eye is telling about the most important uh event of the late 20th century the fall of communism uh something that you know you couldn't be sure the bond series could actually survive uh, and it did and it it's thrived and flourished and I'm really glad, and it is striking watching, you know, uh, silhouettes of women destroy, uh, yeah, destroy sure. communism. Mm -hmm. So, going back into Q's box for our tiebreaker. Okay, you are brought in to consult on the villain. Uh, you are brought in to consult for the villain. How do you fix their evil plan? Okay, Alex. So, I know you want to get revenge on London and England uh, for the betrayal of your people, as you feel as a Cossack. Um, you're going to do that by getting this EMP and launching it over London, uh, destroying their entire financial institution, all of the computers, etc., sending it into the Stone Age. That sounds great with me. I'm down. I get it. You know, I've never been a fan of the Welsh, so that gets them in there. And that way we can just take care of all these problems at once. The part that confuses me is why you go and hang out on that train and not just go straight to Cuba where you know you need to go. You get on the train and, okay, we're going to go run away now. And you've got your little hacker boy doing stuff and he's already in Cuba. You got him there right quick, so you know where you need to go. Why are you going to mess around in Moscow and just go straight to Cuba and get this thing over with? Maybe he needed a drink, I guess. <laughs> All right, Chris, fix that plan. <clears throat> um. <laughs> Bulletproof helicopter. Joking aside, um, <laughs> um, uh, Mr. Blofeld, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to steal your bit like that. Well, I mean, it, it's you are consulting. <laughs> you're you're consulting. You're, you're yeah. pitching. It, it, it is Mr. Blofeld. Yeah. You're not stealing my bit. You're co-opting. Okay, I'm, I'm pitching to Blofeld. We're sharing. Okay. Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Blofeld, um, I love the meteorite. Really nice touch. Um, None of my jackets have collars. Excellent, excellent cat. Uh, they don't. <laughs> clearly, you've spent a lot of money in this really cool um, Raspberry Pi powered torture rig that you've got here. Um, the, the medical drills are surely gonna, surely going to cause uh, some 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 definite pain to Mister Bond. Um, maybe let's up get, upgrade those drills. Uh, let's just let's just strap on some pistols to them robotic arms. I think your your plan will work. 
Um, if you just if you just don't drill into Bond and allow him to use the gadget that he's had for 24 films, an explosive pocket watch of some sort. Um, yeah, just... You've held your secret. You've been up behind all of the events of the past three films. Um, you, you got this down, buddy. Just don't get so arch. You don't like my drills? Oh no. <laughs> or maybe, maybe just upgrade to slightly larger drills. If you drill a much larger hole into James Bond's head, it's as good as shooting him, I promise. Um, and that, maybe there's maybe there's a comfortable middle ground. Maybe if you upgrade to like a, you know, like a, let's call it a three, a three eighths drill bit, um, that will leave him drooling for the rest of his life, probably. Um, but you went with the tiny little dental drill and yes, that probably caused him a lot of pain. It probably, um, it probably won't cause exactly that weird memory thing that you were trying to do, but... Probably made him a sociopath, though. May yeah, maybe. I mean, if that wasn't already... Yeah, if that wasn't already, with that. If that wasn't already there. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe just a slightly bigger drill on that, that, that guy. Um, you, you won't regret it. Um, but definitely, you know, if you're not going to follow that advice, really... Really think about investing in some bulletproof helicopters. Okay. Um. So we've got. Uh, don't have your awesome secret bullet train. Well, no. Oh, okay. Okay. So. <laughs> or don't be hanging out in there when Bond's around. Well, well, what happens is, um, they get this first satellite. Right, they launch it off. Mm -hmm. Over Severnaya. Over Severnaya. And then Bond goes to investigate that, find the girl that found on the satellite image, etc., etc. That's what he's doing in Moscow. Yes. Now, we know Boris goes straight to Cuba because the hacker girl gets a hold of him and traces his signal yes. to the computer he's using in Cuba. So yes. we know they're already there setting up. Yes. If Alex had just gone straight to Cuba... Instead of hanging out on the bullet train for James to find, they never would have gotten to the computer to trace. They never would have done any of that stuff. Doesn't know he's in Cuba. Mission successful. Well, uh, can I make a rebuttal? Well, I'm, I'm making my judgment. Sure. Uh, the reason he finds the train is because that's where Omarov goes. Yeah, and you can catch him. Yeah. That's cool. I think I think the problem isn't, isn't even if Alec is there, just don't have the computer networked yeah. to your one in, in Cuba. Um... That would also help. Yes, uh, I figure the whole Alex's I, yes. whole setup, the whole train with is Alec. the problem. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think. I think. Uh, on the other hand, Blofeld, he went to a lot of work to come up with a, a brain drill that doesn't apparently work, which well, is weird. It, ca <laughs> it causes a lot of pain. To be clear, Bond is not a comfortable man in that chair. <laughs> no, but yeah. it, it is one of those things where it's like, and you won't recognize any faces anymore, Mr. Bond. And then he still recognizes everybody, and it's fine. It's like, you had a drill in your brain. I'm saying this. That, that movie kind of, like... Slightly bigger drill. Yeah. <laughs> it would have worked. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to... I, I don't know. I'm going to give this one to Jafar. He's hanging around for no reason. He's already got his Cuba base. <sighs> All I'm going to say, in, in, in retroactive defense of my point, is that... No, it's a good point. <laughs> is that, is that Jafar's trying to convince his villain 
to not do something pretty arch-villainy. I'm just convincing my villain to upgrade a single goddamn drill bit. <laughs> I think that maybe he's maybe he did a better job of the pitch on that. I think that mine had a better chance of working. I don't know. <laughs> in, in mine, in mine, I mean, to be fair, um, <laughs> when this because. Uh, ben and I had very similar criteria submissions for this, and the thing that I wanted to avoid was he just kills Bond because that is I don't know I was I was trying to avoid that. Well, and this more didn't even, this didn't even in my head. I think when you start to argue with him about the, the drill bit sizes, he's like, "No, it's fine. It's going to work. I, I designed this system. Like I know where I'm going in the brain. It's totally going to work because <laughs> he thinks it's going to work." Um. So yeah. Okay. So that means uh, Jafar won a non-decisive victory. Uh, gives me two points, bringing me up to four. Chris one point, putting him at six, and Ben is at five. So all right. it's all right there right now. Um, <coughs> could be anyone's game still. Uh, we are likely to see an appearance from the coin. The coin. The coin. Um. Let's go ahead. It's uh, Ben versus Jafar. All right, the last match. All right, all right. So I'm gonna reach in to this um, uh, kind of gross, blood-soaked, very expensive handbag. Maybe this is one of James Bond's girlfriend's things. Uh. Yeah. Q. Why you do this? Our first best opening scene. Now, for most films, we're talking after the gun barrel shot, but before the theme song. But there are a few that do not follow that exactly. And secondly, most kick-ass Bond girl. And we've uh, discussed this amongst ourselves, and on this particular category, they don't have to be the Bond girl, as long as they're not a hench girl. Correct? Correct. All right, gentlemen. Ben, you pick first. Okay. I have only one choice when trying to think of best Bond girl. I'm going Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I also have one choice when thinking most kick-ass Bond girl. And that is the spy who loved me. Honor Majesty's Secret Service opens up with uh, James Bond seeing a distressed woman thinking about taking her life in the ocean. Probably a common scene for him, right? <laughs> That's happened more than once. <laughs> well, and five minutes post-credit and maybe seven films. <laughs> and, and this is, but this is important because he saves this one. He, he runs out there and grabs her and brings her in off the surf and then is attacked by two goons. And... This is what I think uh, is a great part of what makes uh, made Lazenby for his one movie a great Bond. He doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have gadgets. It's just James Bond standing in the ocean beating the shit out of two guys. Uh, <laughs> and they keep coming back, like coming at him with boat oars and stuff. And it's just... You, it, it, it makes you realize that you strip away the gadgets, you strip away MI6, James Bond is a weapon. James Bond is a guy who is trained to the 
uh, pinnacle of human perfection, and he just beats the crap out of two guys. And uh, it makes you really appreciate that this is a dangerous guy. Uh, this is, you know, this is James Bond, which feels good, you know, because it's the jarring, it's the first time you have a new Bond. And so you see this new James Bond, he makes, he makes a quip to the, uh, he, to camera as, uh, Tracy steals his car. Well, this never happened to the other fellow. And you see, he is completely intrigued, uh, by the woman who is the point of this whole film. Interestingly enough, I think that Bond has beaten up more people at sea, underwater, or in like a, some sort of seagoing ves vessel, like a ship or a submarine. He's beat up more people at sea than he has at land. He is a naval commander. He is a naval commander, yes. <clears throat> All right. Jafar. So, uh, the opening sequence in The Spy Who Loved Me is probably one of the longer cold opens in Bond films. Um, so a lot happens in rapid succession before we get to our action-oriented cold open scene that we normally get. So bear with me for a moment because I have to set everything up because one of my favorite moments in Bond movie opening, Bond movies in general, is in these quick cuts. Cool. So first thing we see... And we'll have to do that on the next episode of Three Dudes in a Basement Describe Bond Movies to You. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, our new next... New podcast. New podcast, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. Okay, so it opens with the theft of two nuclear submarines. Uh, we see a U.S. submarine get stolen, and they're like, oh, it must be the Soviets. And then we see a Soviet submarine get stolen by the same ominous tanker. And they're like, oh, it must be the Americans before we know what's going on. We don't see who grabs them yet. Mm -hmm. um, then it cuts to KGB headquarters where Miss Rubelvich gives a note to the head of the KGB that a Russian nuclear submarine has been stolen that had missiles on it. So they're freaking out. So it's time to get our best agent on the case. Who is that, Jafar? It then cuts to the Swiss Alps, and we see a rugged Russian man uh, making love in a very Bond-style way with a very pretty lady. When talking, he talks about how he has to get back to his mission in the Alps soon, and that he has to leave. And she's like, no, five more minutes. And then a transponder goes off in a music box, to which the man sits up, and leaves, and the woman answers, Agent Triple X, <laughs> calling Agent Triple X, <laughs> and we find in my favorite Bond bait and switch that she is Russia's top agent, <laughs> and is being put on the case to find this nuclear submarine. We then flash to MI6, Money Penny runs in to M. A nuclear submarine's been stolen. It had missiles. We're going to put our best agent on the case. We then see James Bond, also in the Swiss Alps, <laughs> um, in a cabin, making love to a woman on a bed of furs. 
ridiculous bed of furs, like as one, Game of Thrones style. As one does. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and that's, uh, he makes his typical Roger Moore, oh, it's sexy time quip. And then his watch has a ticker tape come out of it that informs him he needs to report to duty immediately. So he uh, suits up because England is calling. And he goes, and he gets on his skis, and he sets out from the cabin. <laughs> the lady he was making love to reveals her true nature as she calls in to other agents in the area that James Bond has left, and that they need to pursue him immediately if they're going to be successful in their mission of killing him. We flash to the man that was making love to Agent Triple X. <laughs> on skis now chasing James Bond with four other Russian agents. They have a shootout while skiing. Um, this skiing scene is really cool. Um, if you haven't seen it, it is um, the actual skiing part. Okay, so here's the thing about this scene. Hold on a second. I'm going I'm to own up to something about this scene immediately. Roger Moore is very clearly not skiing. He is clearly nowhere near snow when this happens. Um, in fact, the skiing um, stuntman is the third highest paid person in the film. Uh, in a fun fact, he made half of what the female lead made because fucking income disparity and gender inequality is real. Anyways, um, so they're skiing. Um, Bond at one point turns around on his skis, turns one of his, um, what are they called? Poles. One, thank you, one of the poles, into a gun and shoots the dude. Um, that is all an actual skier. That's not like this. the Roger Moore in the studio with the clearly screen behind him. Um, it's very much like old movies when they're in cars and the, scre like the street's moving behind yeah, them. Yeah. It's like that for a handful of scenes closed up on Roger Moore, and then there's an actual dude skiing for a decent chunk of it. And he's like going through jumps, working his way through really tight curves while fighting off four Russian agents. It ends with him skiing off of a cliff, kicking his skis off, and then to the butter butter, releasing a parachute of the UK flag. <laughs> it is ridiculous and lovely and thoroughly Bond. Um, fun fact, the Russian agent that he kills, the dude who was sleeping with Triple X, was originally the guy who was going to take over for Lazenby before Connery came back. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And then he got killed by Roger Moore, the guy that took his job. You know who else was going to be Bond at one point? Sam Neill. Yeah. How much more? How much of a different film would Jurassic Park have been if it was a former James Bond? Man. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the whole raptor scene takes a whole new significance there. All right, Ben, if you'd like a 20-minute rebuttal, I believe you're due. <laughs> I don't think I need one. Uh, because uh, the, the, the opening scene sets up everything you need to know for, for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Bond is uh, better than every other guy he comes across, but he still has to chase after Tracy. All right. Um, so we have Bond beating up some bums on a beach. Goons, not bums. Like, they aren't homeless people. <laughs> I don't know a word for beach that starts with a G, though. Uh, grotto? 
Yeah, he was going for the alliteration. I can oh, okay, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Bond beating up some bums on a beach, or an opening that manages to subvert the entire series and portray James Bond as the epitome of Britishness, like all of the weirdness that would, would become the ripe, fertile ground for parody in later years. Um, I think I'm going to go with Jafar. There's, no, there's nothing like seeing seeing the Russian Bond. Uh, <laughs> so. All right. Number two was a character in Austin Powers. A lot of this, a lot of these, a lot of the more films in particular really fed into Austin Powers. Um, which film has the most kick-ass Bond girl? And we are using a pretty uh, loose definition of that. As long as they were not a hench girl, you can use them. So, well, with their permission, of course, you can use them. Select them. Select them. You can yeah. select them. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have to go with Agent Triple X. Um, the dynamic between her and Bond is different than most other Bond girls um, would become a template for later Bond girls, um, mm -hmm. specifically in their usefulness factor, which is something that is lacking in earlier Bond films in a lot of them. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, this was kind of a turning point for that where, hey, maybe we can have a female lead who's not just a pretty girl in a bikini. There was also a brief moment where they um, they offered the audience both Bond girls and then had James choose the more useful one in the end. <laughs> <laughs> just, I guess, less is, or more is more, right? Uh, so Agent Triple X is at odds with Bond while working with him. Uh, the Russian and U.S. governments um, eventually agree to work together. Um, they spend... Uh, the first third of the movie competing for a strip of microfilm and both actively hunting for it um, before Triple X bests Bond and gets it. And then they both sail away and when they are escaping and she's got the microfilm, she kind of falls asleep for a minute and then Bond grabs it, sneaks a peek at it real quick before she wakes up. Bond takes this as the signal to, oh, hey, it's time for that sweet Bond lovemaking that I am so famous for. Roger Moore. Roger Moore, uh, not exactly known for being big on consent, unfortunately, in his movies. He's um, also, like... In... Uh, Roger Moore the dude, I don't know, for the record. I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything ill of Roger Moore. I don't know, and I'm not going to say either way on it because of that. Uh, but Roger Moore Bond is definitely high in the misogyny factor, unfortunately. But that's what I like about this character, is she, oh yeah, okay, I'm gonna play along with this, and then pulls out one of her cigarette gadgets, which is actually knockout gas, knocks Bond out, escapes with the microfilm, and just leaves him on a boat before they find out they're working together the rest of the film. And that is why she is one of the most badass Bond girls, because right. instead of just submitting... uh or, you know, she's she actually bests Bond twice sure. before they work together. In 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 Bond's uh, defense, he is about thirty years older than her. 
Moore is so old. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So before Agent Triple X, there was Diana Rigg, who do you know who that is? Um, it's not. It's not. Re- it's not relevant to my decision. Okay, but I'm just. I was just curious. She more recently played. Uh. Uh. uh was it Marjorie Tyrell, Ty- the Tyrell grandmother in Game of Thrones? Oh. Okay. Uh, Lady, was it? Uh, She's in the Avengers. Lena Tyrell. Okay. Yeah. Start. Yeah. Uh, start over. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh. Before we had Agent Triple X, there was Diana Rigg as uh, the Countess Tracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bond saves her. Uh, the next day, uh, they run into each other at a casino where she bankrolls his uh, uh, Baccarat game because she's she's already mysterious. And then she proves that she just doesn't care. She doesn't know Bond. She just knows he's some random guy who beat up two attackers on a on a boat on a beach. And she's like, sure, I will be your bank for a card game. Cause I don't care. Uh the most Im- important part though is her dad is like, hey Bond, if you court and marry my daughter, I'll give you a million pounds. And he's like, no, that's creepy and weird to be paid to date somebody because George Lazenby Bond does care about consent. But thumbs up caring about consent. They have a absolutely. Yeah. They have a montage of Bond actually courting Tracy. They they're going to dinner, they're going on horseback rides, they're walking through gardens. Tracy is the one person who uh doesn't fall for Bond after he, you know, beats up somebody and says a pun, he has to freaking work for it. And then he has to go off on his mission and he gets captured by Blofeld and barely manages to escape skiing down a mountain because Bond loves skiing. Yeah. Uh, Lots of it, yeah. Yeah. And he's in a small Swiss town. Uh, Spectre agents are all around him. They're converging on him. And Tracy saves him. She comes out of nowhere and is like, get your ass in the car. And then she drives away. Bond doesn't take the stick. She's the one behind the wheel as they make their getaway from the Spectre goons. They hide out in a barn. And then the next the next day, they have to ski away from Blofeld and his, his, uh, his guys. Uh, so it is... The first time somebody has shown not only to be somebody that is Bond's equal, but somebody that Bond is willing to work for. And that's why, at the end of the movie, he marries her. He marries uh, Tracy, and that is why she is Tracy Bond. That works out well for her. It does not. It it works out very poorly for her. No, but... (laughs) The reason, you know, the reason uh, she is the only person Bond has tried to marry. Because she's the only one who's worth it. Because she is smart, she is snarky, and when push comes to shove, she's, you know, fighting right alongside Bond. 
I think that everything being equal, we have two ladies uh, who have fought alongside Bond. Um, one of them is... Uh, I don't know how else, how else to say this. Um, I'm not so certain that Bond is a great judge of, like, what's a good person to marry. <laughs> he might be the least like the least qualified to make that decision of all time and not not to say anything about uh Tracy Bond um but I think that if we're going for who is a badass bond girl we have to go for somebody whose agenda doesn't conveniently dovetail with Bond's life plan um so I think we're going to go with Agent Triple X um being that she's she's working at odds um not just conveniently in love and capable she's yeah okay Tracy you really bond, need to see on her majesty's secret tracy service. bond is great all right so jaffer won a decisive victory i did yeah did, did not expect that three points and you two go to the finals and chris and i go to the finals yeah. what movie has the more uh ridiculous moment and number two best henchman death it hasn't done me wrong yet I think I have to go with Goldeneye. All right. And Chris? I'm going to choose the only one still left on my list, License to Kill. Important to note, License is spelled L-I-C-E-N-C-E. Not the uh, phony American way with an S in there somewhere. We're talking two Cs. The British way. The British way. Okay. So, criteria number one. What movie has the more ridiculous moment? And I'm going to keep you guys on a tight leash here. You've been going off the rails a bit. We have. Okay. Chris. Chris had the most points. I had the most points by one. Oh, okay. I All had right. seven. Chris had six. You had five. Okay. All then, right. Jafar. What had the more ridiculous moment? 006's death. Um, his actual death, not the fakey one in the beginning of the movie. Spoilers. Wait, what? <laughs> it's a 20-year-old um, movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, when Alex dies, he gets knocked off the top of the satellite and falls, I'm guessing, about 10 to 15 stories. A long, long way. It's a long way. We see him fall for a while. Um, when he lands, we he lands on his back, and his legs are crooked in the wrong directions, but he is still alive. And he lives long enough for to see Bond jump on a helicopter and then to have the top part of that satellite dish come crashing down the same amount and kill him. Uh, surviving that initial fall only to be killed seconds later is insane. All right, Chris, <laughs> your most insane, mo your most ridiculous moment. Okay. Um, I'm going to make a quick honorable mention just so that it gets talked about because I'm not going to use this one otherwise. Um, Wayne Newton is in License to Kill. Yes, he is. He plays a televangelist who's secret... Or I guess he's more of like a spiritual guide on television. And televangelist, but... Yeah, um, we get you. Yeah, he sells cocaine secretly. <laughs> um, basically, License to Kill is just James Bond if James Bond was all about cocaine. Um so my most ridiculous moment for License to Kill 
uh, comes at the very near the very end of the film. James Bond has infiltrated the um, the drug cartel of Franz Sanchez because he not only had to be a drug dealer in South America, he also still had to be somehow vaguely German. Um, and so he he infiltrates and takes down this 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 drug ring from the inside by seeding uh, paranoia and suspicion. Uh, manages to get quite a few people killed by their boss. Um, and the, at the very end of the day, what happens to be uh, Franz Sanchez's groundbreaking way to smuggle cocaine? He grinds it up into fucking gasoline and puts it into four gigantic gasoline tankers. And then we have a very long car chase in which every um, time a tanker explodes, Millions of tons of cocaine are going into the atmosphere. I just can't imagine anything that's more ridiculous than that. Um, Cocaine-gasoline mixture. <laughs> Alright. Well, and I, th- I, I think I have to go with Chris, because the cars and the crew are all powered by cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all cocaine, man. It's the cocaine. Cocaine. <laughs> okay. Best... Henchman death, Chris. Um, so, uh, m- a lot of people probably who haven't seen License to Kill recently, and that's probably a lot of people. Um, will, most, most, most people. Yeah. Well, I mean, they um, avoid the Welsh James Bond. <laughs> people might be surprised if they haven't seen uh, what might be the 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 inferior of the two Dalton Bond films. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, Benicio del Toro is the is the henchman. Yes. Um, and he makes a great henchman. Like he's one of the few times that a henchman isn't really played up for comedic effect. That he, uh, James Bond's plan to infiltrate this inf- this uh, drug organization is going swimmingly, except for the fact that he uh, got into a bar fight with Benicio del Toro at the beginning of the film, and so at this final like climactic scene in the cocaine processing plant. Um, Benicio del Toro recognizes him and it almost causes the whole thing to go to shit and it in fact does cause most of it to go to shit anyways Um, they strap James Bond to a conveyor belt only this time there's no lasers Um, at the end of this conveyor belt is a high RPM cocaine grinder (laughs) Um, that if if you weren't uh, listening that mixes up the cocaine so that it goes into the gasoline real good you wouldn't want that to be high RPM, because that would just blow it up into the air. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think, right? <laughs> but it, it goes really fast. High RPM cocaine grinder. That sounds like something somebody on cocaine came up with. <laughs> it's basically, yeah, it's basically just like a, here's a device to put cocaine into the air that you are breathing. Um, regardless, so this this conveyor belt is like smashing up bricks of cocaine. There's a cool fight. Benicio Del Toro and James Bond are on the on the uh, conveyor belt. Benicio Del Toro is about to cut James Bond's wrist, uh, uh, his wrist bindings, and drop him in there. They're surprised by Pam Bouvier, um, who is, just to put in a sidewise reference to her, uh, one of the coolest Bond girls. If I had been, gotten the same question, she would have been on my list because she's an ex-CIA, an ex-CIA agent who flies planes and can do all of the things that James Bond needs to do. And But uh, basically, Benicio Del Toro goes feet first into this, har- this high RPM cocaine grinder, simultaneously killing him and loading his system up with enough cocaine that he prob- probably doesn't notice it. 
All right, Jafar, best henchman death. I I will be brief, for I am invincible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, we we all remember that scene. Um, he says it a bunch of times in the movie. Um, he survives till the very end, only to be frozen by his foolish nature and his own arrogance and some liquid nitrogen. Why is that even there? <laughs> to cool the computers. Oh, okay. It, yeah, it's no, that makes sense. Supercomputers yep. in the 90s. It's a thing. Yeah. Yep. The deaths in Goldeneye are, I will grant you this. They are very, choice. They're very <laughs> symmetrical. Like, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. You could have gone with, she always loved a good squeeze. Oh, uh, that line kills me, though. <laughs> like, when she gets, I mean, Xenia on the top kills so many people by squeezing them during boning. And for her, like, it, I hate that scene because her body is somehow causing the helicopter to crash. Like, her body on the trees. She's got that core strength, dude. It, <laughs> like, it's just like, the helicopter would have just ripped her in half the second it had any tug at all. Like, that's not how any of that stuff works. It just, that, that scene, oh, even as a kid, when I first saw Goldeneye, I was all like, shouldn't she be ripped in half? Like, uh. But I... I do think Boris is the best henchman death in all of Bond. So sure. it's it's one of the most it satisfying. Is, it is, is real good. There's also there's a there's a henchman that Bond doesn't kill in License to Kill that um, the uh, Sanchez impales him on a forklift and then drives him through a wall. <laughs> awesome. And, and and Timothy Dalton as Bond delivers what is probably the best one liner given to a henchman he didn't kill, which is he. He ran into a dead end, basically. <laughs> Just like, it's like, you didn't even kill that dude. <laughs> okay, so we're going to our final tie break. Whew. Exciting here. Well fought. Well fought. All right. Best Q-section gadget. Jafar. The grenade pen. Uh, it becomes a spy movie staple. Every, every uh, as far as I know, Goldeneye is the first pen grenade. Um, and it's, I mean, when they show it off, it's all like three clicks, runs away from the dummy, Q's giddy. You're right, maybe Q does have a destruction fetish. I might have been wrong, <laughs> been wrong about that earlier, Chris. So we should, we should, um, we should add something in here because I was fought really hard by these two gentlemen that, uh, their reverence for Q did not allow them to see that, like a nanny who sometimes will put up a fuss about people making a big mess, Q really likes it when things don't come back in one piece. I I think it's clear as day. These gentlemen fought it, so this is the first time you're hearing it in this podcast, but I stand by it. Um, I might have to agree. Thinking about his childish glee when that mannequin explodes, I have to I have to go with you um, on that. I think, I think you're right. I, I'm... I, I revoke my earlier comments, Chris. <laughs> All right, Chris, what is your Q, Q gadget? All right, um, so it's not technically a Q gadget, but I'm going to go out on uh, on the same ship that I sailed in on. The entirety of License to Kill, like the whole, uh, the thing that moves the plot forward in the first place, is that Felix Leiter is getting married, Yep. but is... Uh, such a busy dude that he has to also try and capture an international drug lord on the day of his wedding. They get into this 
awesome fight. They pull his plane out of the air with a helicopter. It doesn't make any sense, but um, James Bond, eternal best fr- friend of Felix Leiter, is gifted a, um, a cigarette lighter. And if you recall, that cigarette lighter is pretty uh, pretty good at lighting cigarette. It just like there's like a, it basically just puts out like a twelve inch flame. It's like really, <laughs> it's a really bad cigarette lighter. It's, it's a minor flamethrower. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a very minor flamethrower. Um, Felix Leiter uh, gets um, fed to a shark yep. and survives. License to kill is weird, guys. Um, but the the final denouement of the of the film. Uh, what gets James Bond out of it uh, is that at the very end, you know, Sanchez has James dead to rights. James Bond reaches into his pocket and Sanchez, who has not noticed that he's become totally soaked with cocaine, cocaine gas. gasoline, <laughs> um, is uh, set ablaze by the uh, token of friendship bestowed upon James by his... Uh, his, his, his good buddy, Felix Leiter, whose last name is Leiter, and who gifted him a lighter. A genuine Felix Leiter. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's the line he says. <laughs> I believe that's the line, too. Uh, yeah, uh, well, when you're, when you're going for, for coolest gadget, uh, as cool as an exploding pen is, Nothing beats the genuine Felix Leiter. <laughs> so I'm giving this one to Chris. Alright. Woo! Okay. Good match. I never believed in a million years I would win with a Dalton film. <laughs> they're not bad. They're good. Uh, oh yeah, totally. Uh, by the way. They're empirically, by every measure possible, <laughs> bad films. Here's, here's the thing. If you forget about the fact that James Bond is a, is a government agent... Um, License to Kill is a great film from the 80s about cocaine. <laughs> it, like it's it's up there. You could you could replace um you could replace uh Felix Sanchez with um any of the 80s cocaine villains, Scarface. Um and you'd still have a pretty convincing film. It's okay. Jafar just hates the Welsh. So I don't hate the Welsh. All right. Well, this vi- this victory brought to you by Cocaine and puns. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, you get three points for the overall standing for taking first place. Woo-hoo. I am in second, so I will have second pick in the next draft. I get two points for the overall standing, and I get to pick our next topic. And once again, I have first pick because <laughs> I apparently suck at this game. So, Ben, you lost? Oh, no, I had to watch six Bond movies for nothing. Oh, what a wasted <laughs> week. I watched one of Jaffairs with him. I didn't yeah. even need to do it. That's nice. No, I'm just I, mad. I watched the entire playthrough of Everything or Nothing <laughs> because you picked a goddamn video game. Um, To be perfectly honest, as soon as you told me you had watched the playthrough of it and I hadn't read more than half of the Wikipedia page, I knew I was never going to use it as a pick. Oh, son of a bitch. You were, you were so upset about it that I knew I couldn't use it. It's like, I either go against oh. you, and I know you know it better than me, and you're going to win that, or I use it against Chris, and your prejudice is going to make sure that Chris wins it, so I couldn't use it. He uses platinum tanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna. By the way, I'm gonna pre-apologize to Tracy Bond fans. I know that I'm gonna get a ton of shit for giving it to She's Agent so Triple X. Agent I'm sure. Triple I'm sure X. she is. You gotta um, say it like that. Agent Triple X. Otherwise, Rublevich will come for you. In, in my in my heart, Agent Triple X will always be the extreme James Bond. Yeah. So, All in right. my mind, Agent Triple X is always Ringo's wife, because she is. That's what the actress did. She married Ringo Starr. That's a pretty good outcome for. A... Yeah, she is. She came out on top. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, Jafar, what Ringo's is our next? Bottom. What is our um, next? <laughs> All right. Our next topic is something in. Uh oh. Twice one episode. Has That's that a lot. Before? I don't think Hold it has. Guys, I I just got I just got a a, a message from our anonymous uh, draft universe commissioner. I'd ask you what it says, but I know you can't actually read it. No, it just, like, it just writes itself on my brain. Yeah. And uh, he says, uh, we've been working really hard. Uh, Next week is a bye week. Okay. And we're going to have a guest. What? Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know I can't question it. And I have a feeling that to go against the commissioner's wishes would be bad. Wait, wait a second. Did you just think about going against the commissioner's wishes? Because, no. Because a shadow just flickered behind you, Ben. It that was, was weird. It, it was more of a just, knowledge that I couldn't if I wanted to. That That seems very realistic and totally what's going to happen. I guess next week is a bye week and we'll have a guest. Uh, so... We'll figure that out with you next week. Uh, we'll see you then. Next week. Next week. This has been Draft the Universe. Uh, thanks, as always, to the Kickstand Band for our theme song, How It Feels. Find their music at bandcamp.com. Uh, if you feel like uh, giving us your ideas for future topics uh, or criteria, shoot us an email at drafttheuniverse@gmail.com And join the discussion. You can find us on Twitter at DraftTheVerse. You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash DraftTheUniverse, or using the hashtag DraftTheUniverse. Wait, do you think he meant goodbye week? Oh, I hope not. It's so hard to believe in the flow and start. No one to believe. When you're back on your heels, you're not sure what you know. Oh, I know. is a good movie when you when you got that sorry or that's what that's Lord of the Rings no that's Pirates of the Caribbean Pirates of the Caribbean and we have our outro uh